What seems to be abundantly clear is that for the majority of communist history, if we're going from 1917 up to now, it appears that the two largest states or the two largest empires that have been following this model are not aligned. They're not friends. They are in fact rivals. And at best, they are friends when times are convenient. Welcome back, listeners, to the Modern History HSC podcast. There's a lot of information in the news at the moment about the newly established alliances of friendship between the uh, Russian Empire leftover fragments of the Soviet Union, or just Russia, if you want to call it that, and the CCP or China proper, or the PRC, People's Republic of China. One of the things that you might be taking for granted is that when this sort of information comes across, you might be assuming, well, that's nothing new. Like, like, aren't they always aligned? Haven't they always been aligned? Haven't they always been friends? Like, why do they need to declare some sort of an alliance? Well, I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to talk about the really split and the really tumultuous and hazardous history that these two communist blocs or ex-communist blocs, in the case of the Soviet Union then becoming Russia, after 1991 the history that they've had because for most of their shared history they have only been aligned for a very short period of time and for the rest of that time they've in fact been bitter rivals so we're going to be talking about the sino-soviet split now our story is going to begin in 1949 i could start a little bit earlier but i'm going to start around 1949 because this is the year that China becomes communist. So after World War II, there is two competing factions within China. You have the nationalists and you have the communists. The allies after World War II are openly backing that the nationalists take control of China as the Japanese empire is being purged and being driven out of the country. And what takes everybody by surprise is that Mao Zedong and his leadership of the CCP, or the People's Republic of China as it's going to be become known, is going to stand up and it's going to be triumphant, and the nationals are going to be driven to Formosa, which a lot of people won't know what that is, but you will know it by its other name, which is Taiwan. And then we have a situation of two separate Chinas. But anyway, 1949, the country has become communist, and this is seen by the world as a as a, a massive turning point. Like this was a massive shooter drop because you have the Cold War starting to heat up between the bloc of the West and the bloc of the East, communism versus capitalism. And now you have one of the largest states or largest countries in the world also turning red. Now, this is where the relationship is going to start. And the best way to describe it is that these communist leaders, Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin in 1949, even though they're both communists, even though it's, you know, comradeship and everybody is equal and we're equally aligned, um, it's not quite that simple. The partnership between these two powers is that there is a definite seniority 
senior and junior partnership going on. So Stalin and the Soviet Union is the senior partner. Um, Stalin has taken his country through quite rapid industrialization. And in comparison, Mao's China is, for the most part, pretty much still a feudal backwater. There is not a lot going on. And if you were to go back to medieval times, that's probably the best way to think about China. Uh, the only exceptions would be some of its largest cities on the coast, which would be only showing signs of industrialization through basically colonization of the British or the Japanese or whatnot. So the majority of Chinese are looking to get something out of communism. But they are junior partners and they are going to rely heavily on Stalin and the Soviet Union. And this is something that Mao, as the leader, uh, greatly, greatly resents. He basically has to go to the Soviet Union and beg Stalin <laughs> for any sort of support. So if you have a look on the Wikipedia page, you can see that Stalin did grant military aid and economic aid to the Chinese. But one of the things that doesn't go into detail, and you can find the detail if you were to read a couple of the books of the gentleman that we interviewed uh, last year, uh, Frank Dakota, who's done a lot of work of looking at China and China's history. Mao, when he was invited to the Soviet Union, was not greeted by Stalin. He was sent away to like an apartment, hotels. He was sent away to a separate area where then he had to wait for like days and days. And Mao, I was going to say, has a bit of a personality trip. Um, he has, he thinks very highly of himself. He is, he looks at Stalin as the inspiration for how you run a country, how you form a cult of personality. Mao thinks he can't do any wrong. So having Stalin as this higher figure kind of really grates against him but the relationship is father and son senior and junior partner in 1949 and that continues along until we get to the death of Stalin so when Stalin dies he is replaced by Nikita Khrushchev now one of the things about living under Stalin is that the guy was <laughs> incredibly terrible he used terror to such an extent that, what's a good example? Oh, well, even just think about when the guy died, that people were so terrified of the guy that when he died, oh, when he died, well, initially was having a stroke is probably the point I want to make, that he spent hours and hours just face down in his own urine, just paralyzed, you know, probably just begging in his mind for help, but... The people right outside his door, his own security, were just so terrified about going in to see him that he had just isolated himself and created this error of, we can't report anything to Stalin, Stalin will purge me, all that sort of stuff going on. So the reason why that's important is this all comes from Stalin's cult of personality. And one of the things that gets the Soviet Union moving forward after Stalin is when Khrushchev comes in, and in 1956, begins a process of de-Stalinization. So he makes his famous speech, which is something along the lines of, you know, let's say that not 100% of the things that Stalin did was okay. And this was a massive watershed moment for the Soviet Union, 
where you go from a state of play where Stalin would make a speech and people would start clapping at the end of his speech and you would be so afraid to stop clapping that it would get to the point that people would pass out from exhaustion and that would be the only way that everyone would be then relieved because you didn't want to be the first person to stop clapping. <laughs> it means that you are against him, you're against the revolution. You go from that to the leader openly, even slightly criticising the megalomaniac that was Stalin. This creates a watershed moment in the Soviet Union and also creates a wedge between the Soviet Union and the Chinese. Because Mao, Mao's whole plan is, well, he basically wants to be Stalin. He wants to copy the model. He wants to have a cult of personality. He is so obsessed with his legacy to the point that he is going to actively, after Stalin's death, pursue to be the next senior partner. Even without the economic credentials, even without his country having the military credentials, the country doesn't even have the bomb compared to the Soviet Union. However, he is going to push forward to say that, you know, I'm the oldest, bigger, I've been around the longest, therefore I should be the leader of communism and the Soviet Union should listen to me. This creates a wedge and creates our Sino-Soviet split. Now, there are a lot of other nitty-gritty issues, but it really all boils down to, to that main point, that the Soviet Union is trying to move away from the dark days of Stalin's terror, totalitarian dictatorship, and the Chinese, under Mao Zedong, he's really only just trying to start it. So the Chinese have an interpretation of um, Marxism that they're going to use, and the Soviet Union have their own opinions about Marxism and communism, and they're going to go off in opposite directions. The Chinese are going to pursue the Great Leap Forward in 1958, which is still trying to go down this route of collectivized farming and collectivized agriculture. Sorry, that means exactly the same thing. <laughs> I should have thought about a different example. But the Chinese are going to try to rapidly improve their agriculture and rapidly improve their industry at the same time, you know, China's going to walk on two legs, is the famous quote. Um, whilst the Soviet Union, they have been there, they have done that, they have realised that collective farming is a dead-end failure and you're just going to straight-up cause famine and kill millions. Um, and they're just going to double down on industry and they're going to allow some, some parts of openness and they're going to... Um, but not too much. Um, and the other thing that Khrushchev is pursuing is this idea of peaceful coexistence early on. So, you know, we're going to learn to live with the Americans and we're going to learn to get along. Yes, they get to, that gets almost thrown out the window with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, but then this brings us into our period of detente. So post the Cuban Missile Crisis um, and our American leader is Kennedy, our Soviet leader is Khrushchev and Mao Zedong is still in the picture. Post that crisis, we're entering this period of detente. And detente is basically a French word meaning a cooling off period that, okay, righto, we got to the precipice where we're about to nuke each other into oblivion. Like, that's enough. We need to stop. And we're going to pull back from the brink and we're going to normalize relations and we're going to open up better communication. And effectively, we're going to try to stay out of each other's business. This then enters an era of proxy wars. We've got the 
Vietnam War and all that sort of stuff. But one thing that is perhaps less known is that the Chinese and the Soviets are constantly duking it out in this period of time as well. So even to the point of physical hot conflict. So in places like Xinjiang and in places like Manchuria, where the borders connect with China and the Soviet Union, they're clashing over the border for resources and prestige and all that sort of stuff. Another thing that is causing even more of a wedge is when we start to move into the 1970s. So in the 1970s, we're coming under the leadership of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, who is the Secretary of State. And they pr pursue a policy of linkage. And linkage, in the simplest terms as I can put it, is rather than thinking that everything that my enemy does is coordinated and part of this evil conspiracy and we need to react boldly and to everything, let's deal with each issue separately. So that's what the Americans start to do to bring down the temperature. Another thing that they do is that they are aware that the communist super block is not a communist super block. It's in fact incredibly divided. So Henry Kissinger, through his international negotiations, he is able to increase the wedge between these two powers. So the way that he does that is he continues to deal with Soviet policies on a case-by-case -case basis, which keeps the Soviets happy. It means that they don't have to fight an arms race with the Americans, which they can't afford or anything to that matter. And what they also start to do is they start to normalize relations with the uh, the PRC or the Communist Party under Mao. Because up until this point, the Americans have been supporting the nationalist Chinese government, which is in Taiwan or Formosa. And this is something that has been pissing off <laughs> Mao Zedong. Now, the Americans coming and in the 1970s starting to recognize the Chinese is something that the Chinese have been wanting for a very, very long time. And this then improved the relation and then further creates a wedge between the two communist blocs, which means the Americans have something that the Chinese want. The Chinese want to uh, have respect. They want to be recognized. They eventually want to have access to American markets, which are the biggest and most liquid in the world. And the Soviets, they're not in, in a position to compete like what they did during the brinkmanship period and they're happy for the Americans to be off their backs. Then, as we move into the 80s, we're moving into the 80s, Mao Zedong dies, and we have some new leadership coming to the fray. So, our leadership in China is now Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping has a lot in common, say, with uh, Nikita Khrushchev, where China has been ruled by this megalomaniac, this person who's obsessed with their legacy, this cult of personality figure. And Deng uh, allows this demalification, it allows this breath of fresh air to come into the country, which is, okay, we're going to allow some criticism of the government. And, you know, we'll come out and say that not every single thing that Mao Zedong, uh, Mao Zedong did was, um, you know, perfect. However, he doesn't go as far to allow democracy or anything into the country. 
And this will be one of the things that, again, that they have in common with the Soviet Union. Deng Xiaoping continues to try to improve relations um, and modernization options, particularly economically and um, scientifically and industrially with the US. So he will do a mission, a I guess like a popularity sort of mission to the United States where he's going to pop on a cowboy hat and the Americans are going to lap it up. And the Soviet Union now find themselves with the leader Mikhail Gorbachev. And Mikhail Gorbachev is famous for being the leader who oversees, oversees the collapse of the Soviet Union. And this is in large part to his introduction of Glashnov and Perestroika, which Glashnov is Russian for openness, and Perestroika is referring to a freeing up of the economy, a liberalization, allowing a little bit of capitalism and private ownership into the country. But because the Soviet Union has been suppressed for, God, 70 plus years now, you give them an inch and they take a mile. And that's exactly what happens in the Soviet Union. A little bit of criticism, a little bit of uh, democratization, a little bit of capitalism is enough to whet the appetites of the suppressed masses in the Soviet Union. One of the other things that Mikhail Gorbachev does is he stops the policy of his previous leader, which we haven't talked about yet, who was a gentleman named Brezhnev. And Brezhnev had this policy of keeping the Soviet Union together by force. So during this period of detente, if any of the countries within our Soviet bloc and their little separate dictators start to have trouble, send in the tanks. Send in the Soviet tanks and back up the dictator and strengthen the bloc. Mikhail Gorbachev doesn't want any part of that. He starts to move away from this era of the Brezhnev Doctrine and as people start to criticize, as people start to see that they can improve their lives through some sort of private ownership, some sort of sense of incentive to do more than the bare minimum, and saying that the Soviet tanks aren't going to roll in um, when more cries for change are happening, this inevitably causes the collapse of the Soviet Union. So only in around about 1989, uh, it says here on the Wikipedia article that they've cemented the date that the Sino-Soviet split um, ends, which is kind of interesting that the Chinese and the Soviet relations only start to normalize and improve basically two years before the Soviet Union collapses. And the other thing is that in 1989, this is the year of the Tiananmen Square incident. So a period of time where the Chinese are also being ostracized for their brutal crackdown on people who are looking for uh, democratic reform. If we move a little bit further, this is getting out of our period of study, but it gives you a bit of more information as to why our original question, you know, haven't they been friends forever? Well, now you know that really there has only been positive or semi-normalized relations between the Soviets, uh, which we would now call the Russians, and the Chinese since the early 1990s. And moving into the 1990s, you have this era of that the American empire basically controls everything. They're an omnipotent um, single superpower with nobody to rival them. And the Russians and the Chinese, well, the Russians are in complete disarray 
and the Chinese, they're moving into the globalized system. They're being allowed into the WHO, the World Trade Organization, and, oh, the, oh, sorry, the WTO, not the, not the World Health Organization, though they end up getting into that too. They are, they're modernizing. The Russians are coming to grips with who they are. They're having a personality crisis and all that sort of stuff. And really, perhaps in the last 10 years, the two have now been forced back together into a marriage of convenience. The Russians are, in their mind, facing an existential crisis where they're trying to hold on to what remains of their country under Putin, who is someone who would have lived during the time of the Soviet Union and who has publicly said that the greatest travesty in history is the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the Chinese, who are now, in effect, perhaps in the flip position that they found themselves in 1949. They are now perhaps the senior partner. They have the military strength. They have the economic strength without a question. However, they can see that the Russians are perhaps like what they were in 1949. They are, they are useful for their resources. They are useful for their people. And that's why an alliance today seems so particularly interesting that it could be something that we haven't seen in a long, long time. Thank you for listening to the Modern History HSC podcast. I'm Blake Hamilton, and we'll see you again next time.